thank you, praise team. And welcome to everyone who is here. So I'm sure a lot of us have heard it said that children can be cruel. Usually we hear this in regard to certain actions kids do to one another. I know that when I think back to my younger years, though I concede I'm not that old right now, there are things that I probably shouldn't have said or shouldn't have done. But alas, hindsight is 2020. Thinking about those days, kids often had interesting uh, coping mechanisms for when we had something mean said to us. Does anyone remember, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me? And then there was, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? Or maybe, I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. Yes, us naive children had it all figured out. Or at least we thought we did. Words can't hurt you. After all, they're just words. Oh, how sometimes I wish I could go back and tell young and immature Paul that words can make some major differences. The book of Proverbs offers many thoughts on the power of words or the power of the tongue. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. A soft tongue will break a bone. You see, the tongue can be used to build ideas up and people up. Alternatively, though, the tongue can be, and words, can be used to tear people down and ideas down. Take, for example, Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill, both politicians and leaders in their respective nations. On one side, an individual who meticulously and methodically took power, manipulating a nation and its people into horrific acts. The other leaders measured and calculated response, pulled together a nation under attack, battered, bruised, and uncertain with massive implications of failure for the homeland and Europe at large. The great power that is wielded by individuals and their speech is what we find James speaking about today in the verses we're going to look at. James chapter 3, verse 1 to 12 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, 
setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curse. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, I want to split these verses into two general and different sections for us to look at. And the order in which we're going to look at them is going to be the reverse as the way James has laid them out. The first idea and section we'll be considering today is the general power and the strength of the, of the tongue and speech. In verse 3 to 5, we read, If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. One of my wife's favorite things to do around fall and Thanksgiving is to go to the Norwood Fair. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with the Norwood Fair, it's an agricultural fair that was established back in the year 1868. It was a place where area residents would display the fruits of their labors and to provide an opportunity for some friendly competition between friends and neighbors. At the fair, there are all sorts of livestock shows, demonstrations, goods and wares which are judged, along with booths where locals can sell all manner of goods. However, the most prestigious event, and the event which is the final one of the fair, is the heavy horse draw. In the heavy horse draw, competitors control a team of two horses. These teams are connected to a sled, which they have to drag across an arena, a set distance. As they successfully complete these runs, they move on and weight is added to these sleds. The weights consist of large slabs of concrete. Now, as you can guess from the name heavy horse draw, this is the highest division. These are the strongest horses that the trainers have to offer up for this competition. And I'm no equine expert, so I don't know much about the actual breeding or training of these animals, but they're massive. Every time I see this event or the horses that compete in it, I'm, I always think of them as the Goliath of horses. Massive animals that are that are and still are bred to pull massive amounts of weight effortlessly. And yet one of the most important pieces of equipment to control them is relatively small, a bit and a bridle. With this equipment, even a child can control and direct these massive creatures. James understood and saw that like this, the tongue could wield great power even though it was relatively small. James also observes and compares the power of speech to the rudder of a ship. 
No matter if the ship is large or small, a rudder is used to direct and control and steer it. This rudder was relatively small in comparison to the rest of the ship. Even with today's ships, this is the case. If you look at pictures of large cargo ships or massive aircraft carriers, these ships are all controlled with rudders, which in comparison to the rest of the ship and the cargo is very small. Yet for their size, they have a massive impact on controlling the direction of the ship. It is using these two examples that James stresses the power of the tongue and speech which it can generate. Verse 5, So also the tongue is a very small member, yet it boasts of great things. How true is that? Moving along, James then touches upon the destructive power that the tongue is capable of. Starting partway through 5 and into verse 6, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and setting on fire by hell. In these verses, James compares the destructive power of the tongue to that of a great fire. Admirers of history may be familiar with the great Chicago fire of 1871. This fire ripped through the city center, jumping from one building to the next. In total, it decimated around 17,000 buildings over an area of just of over five and a half kilometers. But even if you aren't familiar with these events that happened in 1871, we only have to think about the massive forest fires both out west and out east, displacing thousands of people just this year. These fires set ablaze from a mere spark a tiny ember that grew into roaring blazes which engulfed vast swaths of land. And while we may have been relatively safe from the flames here in Peterborough, they still had their impact on us. There were many days where we were issued smoke alert statements. I remember one day waking up in the morning to an orange haze outside. When I went outside to my car parked in my driveway, I was surprised to see ash on it. Likewise, the misuse of the tongue, as James warns us here, can have vast and far-reaching consequences, even for how seemingly small it might be. A poorly spoken word has the ability to set something uh, on fire, which can have massive and destructive consequences. In these verses, the language which James uses to convey the idea that the tongue is uh, something which conveys and contains evil and wickedness of the world. His basic idea that the tongue is present in some way in every evil we experience today. In his description that the tongue stains the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, James makes the point that through all the ups and downs we might experience in our lives, that the tongue is responsible for the vast majority of the so-called flames that we go through. Pivoting on that point of the symbolic comparison to fire, James then makes the comparison that this fire is an unquenchable one. James uses the same word in the original language that Jesus used, Gehenna which was derived from the perpetually burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. 
This was a place uh, of fire and filth where, as Jesus says, their worm, their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. In his works, Calvin referenced the tongue as being, quote, an instrument for catching, encouraging, and increasing the fires, or the fires of hell. Though James is not specific in what destructive ways the tongue can serve us, we really need no list. I'm sure all of us can come up with our own and personal ways in which this evilness has affected us and our lives. After illustrating for us the dangerous and far-reaching, how far-reaching the impact of the tongue can have on our lives, James moves in to address the notion that although it may be exceedingly wicked, we can control it. The short answer for the people with this idea is they're wrong. No, they can't. I'm sure many of you have gone to the zoo at one time or another. I know one of my favorite places to go is the Ripley's Aquarium in Toronto. It's so interesting to see all the different kinds of animals, birds, fish. You get to see animals that you'd otherwise might not be able to because of maybe their location or because they're too dangerous to see in the wild. The one thing, though, is that all of these animals in the zoo are somewhat tamed. Just earlier this summer, Amanda and I decided to take Mabel for a walk around the Peterborough Zoo. While walking around, we saw a couple of staff inside of the bobcat enclosure, cleaning up and maintaining the vegetation. Much to our surprise, though maybe we shouldn't have been, the bobcat slowly walked up to a staff and sat down right beside them. The staff member then reached down and began petting the animal as if it were a common house cat. Yet in the wild, these animals avoid humans for the most part. And when we do hear about their interactions, it's usually to do with some sort of attack. On a much larger side of things, we can even think about orcas or killer whales. These massive animals can and have been trained in captivity to perform some amazing tricks, even with trainers inside of the same aquarium. Yet in recent news, there have been wild killer whales going after and ramming boats, even sometimes sinking them. In verses 7 and 8, James references this ability that humans have to tame wild animals uh, to, to make his point about the tongue. 7 and 8 said, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. In referencing this ability, James says that we as humans cannot tame the tongue. And that furthermore, it's full of poison. Much like some of the deadliest poisons, the tongue can spew powerful poison that is almost undetectable, but extremely potent. Subtle, but that will have done its damage before it's even noticed. After outlining the dangerous nature of the tongue, James comes back to one of the issues he was attempting to address with the Jewish Christians he was writing to. Verses 9 to 12 said, With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It seems evident from these verses that James has either heard or witnessed some of the Jewish Christians blessing God's name as they should. He may have heard of their great times of worship and continual praise for God. Yet these same Christians were leaving, and while they had just blessed God, they were cursing those who they were angry to. Now, I'd be surprised if this was something that each and every one of us couldn't identify with. We get done here at Auburn, have a wonderful time on Sunday, get into our cars to drive home for lunch, and as we exit the driveway, we're caught behind a slow driver. Oh, how we love to get mad at the slow drivers on our roads. This type of conduct was shameful to James and needed to be called out. James knew that the Bible said to devote yourself to God, but then to hate your fellow man, that wasn't right. After all, how could you love God, but then not love the people around you who were made like you in God's image? It just doesn't work. James hits this point home with the final three images. A spring cannot produce both fresh and salt water. A saltwater pond can't produce fresh water. And plants can't produce fruit, which come from another plant. Much like this, James appeals to that whatever comes from our tongue shows the source of what's on inside. With an understanding of these ideas— regarding the tongue, I think we can now move back to the beginning sections. The portion, this portion of scripture we read begins with a warning about becoming a teacher, and then James goes from that into what we have discussed regarding the tongue and speech in general. But why does he have this section, and how does it connect? Thinking back to your days at school, I'm sure most of us have had teachers which have played important roles in our lives, where we are today. A teacher wields an immense amount of power. The young minds can be shaped, molded, challenged, and developed by these individuals. A good teacher can and will take notice of the, in the different ways students learn and even the different ways that students may be gifted. They then will use these methods to develop the gifts and skills that they notice in these students. With this applied to the church, it would seem as though we would want to develop and grow those who teach well so that we can build up the people attending. This would have been no different than in back in James's day. So why then does James start off these verses saying, not many of you should become teachers? Is he discouraging people from taking up this responsibility? You see, in James's day, the office of a teacher— held a lot of power and prestige. The title of rabbi actually meant my master or my great one. Additionally to that, to provide for a rabbi in that day was one of the highest duties an individual could fulfill. In my research, I actually found that if a rabbi and your mother and father were captured by an enemy, the rabbi was to be ransomed first. Needless to say, this position was one of great respect. As the Christian church at the time was developing, this type of respect and expectation 
began to work its way into the leaders and the teachers of the Christian church. Because of these perks, many people wanted to become teachers. Combine that with the fact that the places of teaching, the synagogues, were also a place where open discussion and debate happened. There were a seemingly multitude of those claiming to be teachers there who were unqualified. These individuals were often loud and uninformed, which led to their discussions and debates detracting from more credible teachers and causing major disputes and divisions within the communities and the Christian church. The problem with these unqualified individuals is that their ambition for the prestige and perks was the wrong reason to pursue the position. And it's not just a problem that was back then. It continues to be an issue in the church today. People want to be recognized. They want to be influential. They want to have the title. They want to be just like Billy Graham or John MacArthur, maybe. You see, when you are in a position as a teacher, the dangers of thinking yourself above everyone else and that your opinion is somehow more infallible than others is a real concern. Depending on the context, you may disregard other people's ideas because they are too intellectual or because they spend too much time studying. Or maybe you brand them as just unspiritual and less enlightened than you. Likewise, maybe your opinion falls the opposite way. Maybe they're too, uh, not as well read or maybe too spiritual. Either way, ministries led by teachers like this are morally bankrupt. They are only concerned with growing their name and number of followers. Thinking back to our series on Philippians, Paul wrote the words, uh, these words on the subject. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, uh, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. James demands that not many should become teachers, not because he doesn't want Christian teachers, but because he wants to discourage those who want to take the office just for the title and just for the prestige. The church needed and continues to need qualified teachers of right and just motive. But the fact of the matter is that not everyone can or should become a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a youth group leader, a small group leader, or etc., James continues on after his demand that for you know that we who teach will be judged with the greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. It's important to remember here that when James uses the word judged, he doesn't mean in a salvific sense. In other words, that somehow Brent, Brian, Al, and my salvation depends on how or what we taught you. Rather, this is a reference to when every Christian will be called upon to give an account for their life and receive eternal rewards. James's language here puts the assumption on those calling themselves teachers that they should know that by taking up these titles and responsibilities, they are calling themselves to a greater judgment. But why do the, those who teach or call themselves teachers offer themselves up for this greater judgment? It's because of what claiming the title means. 
It means that someone is claiming to have a knowledge of God's word for his people. It means that this person is charged with delivering it to the people. It means that this person is charged with delivering it clearly and coherently. Those who are teachers will undergo a stricter judgment by virtue of their more substantial knowledge and understanding of God's word. It is interesting to note that in a number of places, the Apostle Paul actually suggests that the gift of teaching is, for a lack of a better term, above that of prophecy. You see, a prophet would just repeated what God said, but a teacher had the responsibility to break down, study, explain, and expound on that message to God's people. If I'm honest with you, this scares me. It scares me standing up here. It scares me as the leader of a Bible study. It scares me as an elder of this church. I realize that as the one up front here, while it's an amazing gift, it is one that is shouldered with massive responsibility, as James says here. Think to the verses we heard read earlier from Luke. Everyone whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. Or in other words, as made popular in a Spider-Man movie, with great power comes great responsibility. Often when I'm preparing a sermon, though I don't speak all that often, I will spend many evenings in my office on my computer. I spend time praying, reading, researching the topic, trying to come up with the best mix and way to present to get the idea of either the topic or the scripture that I'm speaking on across to all of you. Why? Because I know in the end, one of the things that I'm going to be judged on is what I've said and taught you. The even scarier aspect of this is not only will teachers be measured on what they taught, but how we followed it. Do we stand up front here and tell you not to desire material things and then go out after church and long for that new high-end sports car? Or maybe we stand up here and we tell you not to gossip, only to gossip ourselves around the coffee and uh, cookie cart out there. James wants teachers to take notice of these things. The other reason that James gives us uh, for cautioning us against becoming a teacher, because we're all sinners. The tense here even suggests continual or repeated sinning. We all sin, and we all sin in many different ways repeatedly. This is where James links the idea of the tongue, which we have already discussed. Teaching employs us, uh, employs the use of the tongue. And as James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. You see, some of the greatest people we read about in the Bible struggled with their tongue and their speech. Job did, as was revealed in the last chapter in the book of Job. Isaiah did, and he had to have his lips touched with a burning coal to cleanse them. Even Moses was written about in the book of Psalms as speaking rather recklessly. And then there was Peter, who made the claim that he would never abandon Jesus, and then did just that not long after. 
We can find plenty of examples of so-called great teachers or people who have had issues controlling their tongue. Controlling one's tongue is an extremely difficult thing to do. In that sense, this is why James says that the person who is able to control his tongue is easily capable of controlling the rest of his body. It's so easy to sin sin with our tongue that if we could control it, we would be able to control the rest of our lives with no problems at all. What's James' message to those who who might be gifted spiritually with eloquent speech or maybe who just really like to teach without paying attention to what they're saying? He's saying it's not worth it. Pack it in. Don't do it. James' motivation for his command, not many of you should become teachers, is that he wants those who teach to have control over their tongues because a chaste tongue means a pure heart and a life submitted to God. In closing, there aren't many sections of Scripture which are so graphically relentless and repetitive in making this point. In addition, this section of verses seems to be the most convicting uh, exposition of the tongue and one speech anywhere that we can find in Scripture. We must also remember that it was not just James's local concern for his church that he was writing to, but it's also the Holy Spirit's desire that the church at large control our tongue. I want to leave you with Romans chapter 10, uh, partway through verse 14 to 15. It says, And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Dear Father, I just come to you now. I thank you for um, these words, God. I ask you to use them for the far-reaching message, God. And just use Auburn, God, to reach out. Help us to control our tongue, God, and to use it understanding the consequences of it, God, and devoting to you our speech, God. I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.